Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Uh, you are joining us again in the middle of our US History Weekend. Uh, we're thrilled to welcome back Professor Robert Watson. Hey, Robert. Hello, Alex. Hi, academic and, of course, author of uh, fantastic books such as Nazi Titanic. Um, but we're here today to talk to you about, uh, we're going to do Revolutionary War today because we really wanted some of this content for this weekend. Um, I'm not pissy about the fact that the British lost. I think we need to include it in a weekend about American history. Uh, so we're specifically going to talk about New York, aren't we? Um, so yes. New York. I understand it as a British stronghold to some extent. Um, so tell us about the campaign to seize New York. Good. Okay, yeah, you're spot on, Alex. New York City becomes the stronghold uh, of, of British military and political rule uh, during the revolution. Uh, General Howe and Admiral Howe, brothers, they decided to make New York City their focal point uh, for a number of reasons. One, New York City had one of the larger loyalist or royalist, that is pro-British populations uh, during the time. Secondly, it's a fantastic harbor. New York City has, you know, a, an abundance of waterways, navigable waterways, deep water ports. So if you want to run a war uh, and you want to bring over thousands of soldiers and supplies and deep hauled ships, New York City's the place to be. Uh, so that's why they focused on it. And the main uh, focus began in the uh, uh, summer and uh, early fall of 1776, uh, not long after the Declaration of Independence was written, and the Howe brothers set sail for New York City. And uh, George Washington had uh, learned uh, through a spy network, and he also had a hunch that the British were headed to New York City. So Washington races there with maybe 10,000 men and a few militia here and there, and he digs in uh, earthworks, uh, picket lines, trenches. Uh, of course, the problem for Washington is even if you have an army of 100,000, it's impossible to defend every stretch of beach, every port, and every possible landing place from Long Island to Staten Island to elsewhere around New York City. Uh, so he digs in. Uh, Howe sets sail uh, with what was at the time the largest expeditionary force ever to leave British shores, roughly 32,000 men uh, in an armada of warships and supply ships, along with approximately 9,000 Hessian mercenaries. Those are the Germanic soldiers of fortune. So Washington is about to be outmanned, outgunned, uh, out everything. And uh, unfortunately also for Washington, as Howe's armada is sitting offshore at anchor, local fishermen 
local merchants who are pro-British simply sail out and tell how Washington's over here, but he's not over there. So he um, leaves a stretch of beach at Long Island and at uh, Staten Island undefended, and that's for the British land. And you have one of the uh, major battles of the revolution, one of the first big scale battles, and that's the Battle of Brooklyn, sometimes called the Battle of Brooklyn Heights, sometimes called the Battle of Long Island. So at Brooklyn, uh, Howe overruns Washington. It's devastating uh, for Washington's army. He's pushed back to the edge of the water, almost like a World War II Dunkirk type of evacuation. His army's ready to be pushed into the, into the river. Um, but how uh, suddenly and foolishly and unknowingly uh, gives the halt order before completely overrunning Washington's army, which may have been the end of the war, quite frankly. What Washington does is he's a, he's a, he's a crafty fellow. He lights campfires and leaves a handful of men behind making noise and walking around. So how spies think the entire army is there and they decide, well, we're going to finish Washington off in the morning. At night then, Washington has a, a colonel from Marblehead, Massachusetts, named John Glover, and he steals boats. Uh, he's a fisherman, and he and his fellow fishermen from Massachusetts get Washington's entire army off Brooklyn, across the river, and out of harm's way. Washington is the last person to leave Brooklyn. That's the kind of leader he is, and they take off. Howe arrives in the morning, ready to finish Washington off, and there's cold embers from the campfires. He realizes he's duped, but he has secured Brooklyn, an important port, an important city, and he then annihilates Washington's army, which is racing uh, for their lives, leaving men, wagons, supplies, artillery behind. So Howe and his brother seize New York City, and they would hold that until the very end of the war, the last piece of real estate uh, during the war in 1783. So uh, that's the sort of the backdrop for New York City. Amazing. Um, now, the rare thing is, and this is what we're going to get onto because this is what your book's about, um, which I absolutely love, by the way. The rare thing is that the British have got in their hands now a massive amount of prisoners for the time, haven't they? They've got 4,000 yes. prisoners of war. And this is in the days before sort of static prisoner of war camps. Um, so what do they do? Good. You're, you're right. Excellent question. So what Hal doesn't plan on is how easy the victory is. They thought it would be decisive, but not this quick and this easy. And he finds himself with, as you said, roughly 4,000 prisoners of war. Now, here's the problem. Um, as Washington's army is leaving New York City, either the army or some locals who were patriots, my guess is both, set fire to parts of the city. And a good chunk of the city burns. Uh, Estimates vary from anywhere from a quarter to about 40%. So part of the city is destroyed. The city basically has two prisons, and each prison accommodates a handful of prisoners. That's it. Uh, Howe cannot convert barns because he needs the barns to feed a massive army of tens of thousands of men as warehouses, as store, storage houses. He confiscates a few sugar houses. Uh, he confiscates a handful of churches, uh, non-Anglican, other denominations, Dutch and so forth. He confiscates them, tears the pews out. But remember, one church and one sugar house can only accommodate maybe a few dozen, maybe a few hundred prisoners. So he's in a real pickle. What do we do with all these prisoners? They don't want to invest the time 
energy and resources to build prisons because they believe the war is about to end. So why do all that? Uh, prisoner exchanges have not yet been formalized. Moreover, the Howe brothers do not see the Americans as prisoners of wars. war. They see them as criminals. After all, they challenge the king. And there's no leaving uh, his majesty's, you know, as once his majesty's loyal subject, always his majesty's loyal subject. So they see the Americans as prisoners, not deserving of a prisoner exchange. So what they ultimately do is they decide to hulk, H-U-L-K, a handful of old, large warships. And one of those ships is called the Jersey, the HMS Jersey. She was built in the 1730s. And at her prime, she was a marvel to behold, a beautiful ship. She was strong, swift, multiple decks, multiple masts, carried roughly 60 guns, which made her a, a weapon of mass destruction. Uh, she had a crew of some 400. Uh, however, uh, the ship was seen to be cursed. Her captain mysteriously dies. Uh, a malaria epidemic sweeps through the ship during one of the early battles. She's defeated off the coast of Brazil. She's defeated and wrecked off the coast of Cuba. She seems to be a cursed ship. No one wants to crew her. No one wants to captain her. And by the, you know, the, the time of the Revolutionary War, she's four decades old. She's past her prime. The British decide rather than, than renovating this cursed, aging warship, um, they sail her over to, the, to New York as a supply ship. She goes from being this marvelous state of technology uh, warship from the 1730s and 40s to being to the inglorious duty of carrying, uh, you know, cattle and, and straw and, and gunpowder and molasses and supplies. So as they're trying to decide which ships to hawk, she becomes one of the obvious choices and they hawk the jersey. That is, they tear off, tear off her masts, uh, her rudder, uh, her wheelhouse. So basically, she looks like a large box, a floating coffin, if you will. And they decide to fill her with prisoners. And she then becomes a floating prison. And the conditions on board the ship were so ghastly. And I've written on the Holocaust. We, you and I talked about it at a previous one of your one of your webinars, one of your podcasts. Um, uh, so I mean this with all due respect, but she resembled a floating concentration camp in many ways, and you could make that argument. Wow. Um, let's do this in a bit of detail. First of all, um, how were the prisoners of war treated um, in the makeshift prisons before they got on the ships? What, what had they become used to? Okay, so the prisoners of war policies at that time were, were, were undefined. Uh, neither side really had laid it out. You know, the Americans are simply trying to get enough boots for their army. You know, their army's basically made up of uneducated blacksmiths and ill-equipped farmers and clerks. So, uh, you know, they hadn't gotten to the point of working out prisoner exchanges. The norm was uh, the British were used to wars in Europe, whereby there were established exchanges, one general for one general, one colonel for one colonel, maybe, you know, 25 sergeants for one major, maybe 40 privates for one captain. You know, they, they had this uh, mathematical exchange set out. Uh, so that kind of governed You also had commissaries and, and folks who were appointed to make sure the prisoners 
uh, had enough food and water and so forth. Uh, the word used back then was a cartel. So let's say you're the town of uh, Providence, Rhode Island. The city of Providence might have, you know, 25 sailors and 200 soldiers that were its sons and brothers and fathers who are now prisoners of war. So Providence would organize a cartel. So the town and the churches would take up collections of food and blankets for the winter, and they would deliver them to the prisoners. Uh, the problem was, uh, one, the British did not see the Americans as prisoners of war. They saw them as criminals, convicts. So they weren't deserving of this. And there was a, a commissary, a warden, uh, an Irishman named Cunningham, who was just a monster. He was in charge of some of the prisoners in New York City. And what Cunningham would do when, and we have multiple accounts, including Cunningham's own account. He's darn near boasting of this. This is how cruel this man was. And a few of the prisoners who lived through the ordeal with him wrote about it. Uh, so let's say a daughter or a wife uh, or a mother would show up uh, at the prison with apples, maybe a blanket, uh, a pipe, you know, uh, shoes, whatever. Uh, what he would do is he would force all the prisoners to watch. And it must have just killed the prisoners because they knew what was coming. He would then strip the woman, put her up against a post, and have her whipped brutally in front of the prisoners. Then he'd send her off bleeding, and he would then steal the apples, the shoes, the blankets, whatever the case may be. So even though there were those prisoners of war protocols and exchanges, the British one, did not see the Americans as prisoners. They didn't, weren't deserving. Two, they placed, the British had, unfortunately, some really cruel, uh, reminds me of some of the commandants from the concentration camps. And again, I say that with all due respect, uh, that I've read about and researched and wrote about. Uh, and then the other problem was once they went to the Jersey, there was a, um, uh, the, the captain, if you will, the commandant who oversaw the ship, his name was Sprout, S-P-R-O-A-T. He was a Scot. And this man was just evil. Uh, he, uh, he just abused, beaten, tortured uh, the prisoners. Uh, the, the conditions were just barbaric. Uh, what they would do is they would batten down the hatch and then board up the portholes, leaving the men cramped, crowded, deep below deck uh, with no sunshine, uh, no light. They weren't allowed to light a candle no water, no food. They'd be down there, you know, for hours and hours all night long to the point where there was so little air, it was so crowded and it was, it was hammered shut that the men said when they tried to illegally sneak a candle and light it, it wouldn't even stay lit. And some of the men died of asphyxiation uh, because of the lack of oxygen. Uh, these were the conditions. And Sprout was, uh, I'll give one example. Um, at one point, they do negotiate a prisoner exchange. It's late in the war. It's obvious the war is going to end. It's obvious the Americans are going to win the war. And it's obvious that one of a few things is going to happen to Sprout. Either A, George Washington's army is going to march into New York City and Sprout's in trouble and is a prisoner. B, uh, disaffected locals and escaped prisoners are just going to storm the ship and likely tear him limb from limb. Or C, the prisoners will have an uprising. So he negotiates this uh, exchange. What he does is he has a few hundred prisoners, and uh, they're going to exchange one for one American sailors for uh, British sailors. And he says, you know, 
I'm going to have a, a last meal for all of you. You know, almost a no hard feelings kind of a thing, which is ridiculous. But he he has them uh, gives them some food. Unbeknownst to the prisoners, he laced it with poison. And when oh these God. prisoners get on a schooner to go back home, almost all of them die while on the schooner or within days of arriving back home. And this was one of his parting shots. So even though there were protocols, Alex, even though uh, you know, some prisoners of war on both sides were treated well and some were mistreated. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, all bets were off when it came to New York City and this particular ship. It's insane. Um, it's just a sadistic bastard. Um, George Washington becomes disturbed by the reports of prisoners dying on this ship, doesn't he? What does he do? Yes. You know, fortunately, uh, you know, Ben Franklin wrote about this. He informed the French Uh, in Paris uh, of what was happening when he heard about it. Uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, took depositions like a good lawyer with a handful of the people that survived. Washington tasked Alexander Hamilton, his trusted aide, to look into this. And Washington appointed uh, members of the Continental Congress to try to go to the ship and negotiate with the likes of Sprout or Cunningham and these other sadistic bastards. Uh, But what Washington does at one point, he contacts the British command And he says, need I remind you that I have British prisoners, and if you don't improve the conditions, I could treat your prisoners the same way you're treating our prisoners. So he kind of reminds them that he has these prisoners. And as the war winds on, Washington has more defeats than victories. But if you think of things like Yorktown and a couple of other large victories, Washington has generals. He has colonels. So uh, that's what prompts the British to engage in a few prisoner exchanges involving the ship, because when it's a, a lord, a sir, a general, an admiral, uh, the British are willing to move heaven and earth uh, to try to get them off. So Washington repeatedly threatens that I will treat your prisoners, my prisoners, the way you're treating uh, the Americans. But it appears, as best as we can tell, and I've talked to a lot of historians, I've gone through the archives, I've read all the letters, Washington never, and I'm happy to say this uh, because I'm a Washington fan, he never seems to have really acted on this uh, by torturing or brutalizing the uh, the British prisoners in his care. Was there a difference between how how and his flunkies were treating uh, the French, the Spanish and the Dutch prisoners they had compared to the Americans? Yes. Um, So, for example, on this ship, the Jersey, uh, there were uh, anywhere. I mean, the numbers varied. There were a few hundred at one point, but at at its norm, it had a thousand, one thousand, two hundred men crammed in a ship designed for 400. So it was packed and there were multiple decks. Uh, The worst treatment was for, for the French prisoners. The very deep bottom hall where you usually just kept ballast. Yeah, uh, artillery or, or, you know, and so forth. You understand um, that was reserved for the French. So what we have is a, a handful, you know, the, one of the problems in writing about this and one of the reasons why I think this story had gone largely, you know, uh, you know, unresearched or unstudied or unknown for you know, two centuries plus is because there was, I estimate a 90% plus mortality rate on board the ship. Mm-hmm. So dying near no one made it off the ship. The I mean, just for, it, just for context, yeah. sorry, um, 
yeah. if people don't understand the makeup of a ship this is the part of the ship that you just fill with stones so it doesn't roll yeah. over and it's yeah. it's wet there'll be seawater in there it'll stink yeah. um, and yeah. there will not be a semblance of natural light down there I and mean, it's literally it's not even you don't even store stuff down there do you because it's rank no no because no, it would rot and the ship by that time was leaking badly in fact they had to you know the bilge pump and they had the men manning the pump 24-7 or the ship would sink. This is how rotted uh, this ship was. So to be down in those decks, you wouldn't even put, you know, coffee or, or molasses down there. Anything would rot. So these folks were in a wet, stinky, dirty, no natural sunlight. So what the few Americans, uh, you know, several Americans wrote about this who survived it. They wrote that the death toll was far worse for the French and they felt horrible for the French. And what they would say is they were allowed no interaction with the French deep below decks, but every once in a while they let the French up on the top deck, uh, presumably if it's raining to wash themselves off. Uh, there they let them walk around to get a little bit of exercise for a few minutes, then at bayonet point, shove them down below. The Americans described uh, ghostly figures, skeletons, uh, aberrations uh, of just these more dead than alive skeletons climbing up the ladders. Uh, and one of the, uh, his name was Thomas Dring, D-R-I-N-G, uh, who was one of my favorite characters that I found in the book. Dring, uh, what they do is the men are given, I estimate, the Americans, the French worse. The Americans are given, I estimate, about two-thirds of the caloric intake per day that one needs to stay alive. So the point being, even if you eat, you're still dying. It's just a slow death. Mm. Um, but And what they were given was they were given something called, they called it burgoo, which is like a, a porridge or an oatmeal, uh, just some soggy, worm-infested. They were given hard tack, uh, which was a bread that had the consistency of maybe the heel or sole of your shoe. And the men were worried that if they bit into it, they would lose a tooth. So they typically would drop it into boiling water to soften it. Some would play a game and count how many bugs or worms would come out of it, but then they ate those because they needed the protein. And every once in a while, they were given butter. Now, it wasn't really butter. Dring describes it as a putrid oil. But what he said was the little interaction they had with the French. Of course, we know the French love their beurre. They love their butter. Mm. Um, and uh, so he felt so bad, he always saved his rations of butter, this grotesque oil and he would give it to the French when they were headed back down to the deep holes so he felt even though he was starving to death he felt so badly for them so the treatment was bad toward the Americans uh, but even worse toward the French and we don't you know I don't know what the mortality rate was there but what we do know is of the few French that were below decks um, every couple of months they would just take skeletons out and either throw them overboard or bury them so virtually no survivors from below decks uh we don't have an account one way or the other but it appears that no one survived uh, deep below decks um who was dame grant and how did these men try and keep up their morale in this scenario so there wasn't much to keep up their morale um you know each morning for example uh the men would describe that as the you know the, the hatch was was nailed shut they would hear the boots of the sentries on the deck and they'd hear them prying the hatch open, and then they would yell down the same thing every morning, quote unquote, rebels, turn out your dead. So from the time they awoke, death was on their mind. And what they had to do was hand up a couple of skeletons and the dead who died at night 
and the few men that survived this and wrote about it, they would describe six to 12 men dying per night, 365 nights a year, year in and year out. So do the math. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So, you know, it was hard to keep the morale up. One of the few things was this woman called Dame Grant, uh, Mrs. Grant. Uh, She was a portly uh, older woman who lived not far from the the, the ship, which was uh, 100 yards off the coast in Brooklyn um, in a bay called Wallabout Bay. And you can look across to the Brooklyn Bridge and look across to uh, uh, Manhattan. Uh, If anybody's familiar with New York City, uh, it's where the Naval Yard, the Brooklyn Naval Yard uh, was right there uh, in in the, the waters off the Naval Yard. So Dame Grant lived nearby, and what she would do is she would get a young boy, and the boy would row her to the boat, and she would visit once a week, twice a week, and Dame Grant would bring tobacco, a pipe, a comb, a razor, apples, she would bake bread, whatever. Now, um, some of the prisoners were allowed to, if, you know, they were typically looted, uh, so the sentries, if they had any prison, if the prisoner had any money or decent boots, they were typically stolen. Some of the prisoners, however, were able to hide money, and uh, Dame Grant insisted uh, on selling or giving. Sometimes she sold cheap, sometimes she gave uh, these uh, apples or whatever to the prisoners. Now, why would the guards allow her to do this if they were so sadistic? Because she also gave and sold some to the guards. Imagine you're a guard, and you're on the top deck of the ship. The stench, the death, the foul conditions Uh, And and you're getting limited rations as well. So if a woman comes on board with apples and a pie and tobacco, you're more than happy to get it. But if you don't let the prisoners get some, she won't trade with you. So Dame Grant, uh, the men would describe that they would all run to the, when the portholes were not boarded up, they had iron bars. And all these skeletal eyes would be pried against the side of the ship, looking out to see Dame Grant. Uh, and not only did they get an apple or maybe some tobacco, a few of the men, but I think the, the, the main purpose of Dame Grant was she probably reminded these young men of their mother, of their grandmother, of an auntie, you know, and, and some normalcy. And she probably gave them hope. Uh, and, um, and, and it's the only woman they ever saw. And she was this motherly figure who would come on board and deliver things. So it was not that you even got an apple. Most people never got anything, of course. Uh, but it was the idea of looking for her, and then she would row back, and you knew someone was alive and, you know, in a house and waiting for the war to end. Tragically, by boarding this ship all the time, Dame Grant contracts one of the diseases that was just tearing through the halls, and she dies. Could you tell us about Andrew Sherburn? I mean, what makes his story unique? Okay, so I, I tracked about a half dozen men. I found in total about uh, 12 to 15 reliable diaries. Um, but I, I picked, uh, I tried to pick uh, about a half dozen men that uh, have different backgrounds. One was a preacher. One was a little 13-year-old boy. One was a dashing officer. You know, one was, uh, and so forth and so on. So you have Sherburn and a couple of the other men who are um, uh, very religious um, He's a man of the cloth. Um, He is wrestling with his own mortality. He's wrestling when he's on board with, he has ill will toward the guards, but he knows that's not the right thing. He questions his belief in an almighty because how could an almighty 
allow this furnace, this hell on earth to exist. He's wondering if he's not getting punished from the Almighty for his own sins. He's making promises that if he gets off the ship, he'll dedicate the rest of his life to his faith. So you have some really interesting men who are dealing with, uh, you know, very, very day-to-day, uh, -day, uh, you know, complications and difficulties that are just uh, exponentially worse because they're stuck on the ship with everyone uh, dying. Um, and then you have a few others uh, like uh, Dring, the guy I mentioned earlier, Thomas Dring, D-R-I-N-G, who, you know, he's writing saying that if I ever get my hands on Sprout or one of those officers, God have mercy on their soul. Uh, so they are just planning to escape. They're planning to kill uh, those on board. So one of the few things that keeps the men alive is their faith, the visits from Dame Grant. Uh, on the 4th of July one year, the men each, each saved a little bit of whatever food was non-perishable, piece of hard tack. Each night, they were given a small cup of putrid water. Uh, so they would only drink half the cup and save the other half. And the water, you know, I always say, if, if, and I said in the book, if you eat, you die, if, because you only get two-thirds of the calories. If you don't eat, you die. If you don't drink, you die. If you do drink, you die. Because what they would do is they would, the guards would get a bucket, uh, attach a rope to it, and drop it overboard. First off, Wallabout Bay is putrid, mosquito-ridden. It's more of a mud flat at the time than it is a, a scenic bay. Um, it, so, and, and they would throw bodies overboard. They would dump, uh, they had one tub that was used for human waste. And the men hated it when the guards would call down someone's name. And a couple men had to carry that tub up the uh, steps because it was heavy and it would spill all over them. So feces and urine is just spilling all over everyone. And they couldn't clean themselves until the next time it rained, if they were lucky enough to get on the top deck. Um, and they would always describe the poor French because the cracks in the hall, all that feces and urine would drip down to the lower deck into the, you know, the, the, the residue on the, on the floor of that. But they had to carry up this tub. But then with the most horrific thing was they were told to dump the tub over the side of the ship. And then the British guards or Scottish guards or whomever, or some of them were Americans uh, who were often the cruelest, uh, they, would, they would drop the bucket into the water and pull it up. And the men said, you would almost vomit, to, even though you're, you're thirsty and you're, and you're dying from dehydration, you would almost vomit because of the smell of the water. So what the men did was they saved a little bit of food, maybe half a cup of the water, which was tough to save because they're all starving. And then they, um, they got some bits of clothing off the dead and they made little flags. And on the 4th of July, when they were allowed above decks for a short period, all the men took out their hard tack and their cup, half a cup of water and took out these little homemade flags and they all had a bite to eat and a drink together and they started singing patriotic songs. That inspired them. However, the guards ordered them to stop, cease. So the men just sang louder. The guards ordered them to stop again. So the men turned and faced the coast and sang at the top of their lungs, hoping the sound would travel across the water. So the guards openly attacked the men, firing into unarmed crowds and at, at swords and bayonets, stabbing and hacking and slashing, and drove the men all down below decks. And then they nailed the, 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 the port, uh, the hatches shut, and left them there all day, all night, and the next day. No water, no food, no nothing. And when they open up the hatches, of course, countless men are dead 
from being hacked and bludgeoned. And, and uh, so uh, there was very little to uh, give them faith uh, and inspire them other than their religion and Dame Grant. But one of the things was the hope of escape. Yeah. And many men planned it and many men and some men did get off. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It just, uh, the conditions sound to me just before we move on to escapes, like a slave ship. Oh, no question. No question. There was even um, uh, the chef, the cook, uh, and the, the, the prisoners called him His Majesty the Cook, not as a compliment, making fun of him because he thought he was all that. Uh, they had a big cauldron. Uh, they called it the copper, this big cauldron. They would fill it with water and boil it. And then the men were allowed to briefly, this green rotted meat or this disgusting burgoo, this porridge oatmeal or a piece of hardtack, they were briefly allowed to cook it. By cook it, uh, what they meant was if you had a piece of yarn, a piece of string, a fish hook, uh, a knife, uh, whatever, you could drop it down into the boiling water for, uh, you know, just a minute or so. And then you had to get out of line and at least you were able to boil it so you could eat it. But the mm. problem was the men would line up uh, at the, the great copper uh, to, to cook and his majesty, the cook, would stand there with a big ladle. And periodically, he would get scalding hot water and throw it in the eyes of the prisoners, uh, blinding uh, the prisoners or scalding them. So if you lined up to eat, you risked being blinded. If you didn't line up, you had to eat rotted green meat and hard tack filled with bugs. Um, and then the problem was uh, there would be 1,200 men in a queue. Uh, His Majesty the cook, the chef, uh, maybe once 800 went through, he just said, that's it, no more service. So if you're the oldest or the youngest, the weakest, the sickest, if you're one of those who's in the back of the line, you just don't eat. And if you do have food, you don't get to cook it. Um, so it reminds me of, of a slave ship. Uh, certainly, the I would say this, and again, with all due respect, um, the death toll aboard the Jersey, the ghost ship, as I call it, hell afloat, uh, it was nicknamed. Uh, the death toll was significantly beyond almost any slave ship ever written about. Uh, uh, even the slave, the slavers, as horrific and inhumane as that transatlantic voyage was, they had a vested interest in making sure a few were alive so they could make money when they sold them at a slave auction at Charleston or wherever, whatever they did. Uh, but with this, this ghost ship, the mortality rate was significantly higher, perhaps 90%. So bad, so that toward the end of the war, 
not one but two uh, ships burned. The Jersey was the main prison ship, and she was there for years. Periodically, one or two other small ships would be a satellite ship nearby, and then they would sink or take them away, then bring another one. So the Jersey was the biggest. It had more prisoners than all the other ones put together. But two of the other ships were burned. Uh, and the evidence that survives suggests that the prisoners were so desperate, they set fire to the ship even though they were stuck in it. Um, so, yeah, it reminds me of a slave ship. Good point. Um, so you, you briefly spoke about that there were escapes. Can you tell us more about the escapes that happened off the ships? Yeah. So I think some of the most interesting stories for me, I, I think the whole story of this ghost ship of Brooklyn, as I call it, uh, is fascinating. But, but for, for me, it was, one, that the British used this ship as an early form of psychological warfare, of terror. What they would do is they would announce, you know, people would type, uh, write up what were called broadsides, uh, you know, like a one-page poster or newspaper, and they would tack it on a pub door, you know, hear ye, hear ye, and it would say something. Uh, orators would go out and, you know, hang a lantern in a tree and kick over a soapbox and hop up on it and hear ye, hear ye, and that's how they spread the news. What the British did through broadsides, through announcements, through newspapers, is they basically were saying to the colonials, to the Americans, if you pick up arms against us and if you get caught, you're going to the ghost ship, you're going to hell afloat, you're going to the Jersey. And we all know that there's only one way off the ship, and that's, you know, horizontal. So uh, they use this as an early form of, of psychological warfare, hoping that it, it would be so ghastly. So they had a vested interest in making sure this was, was worse than a slave ship, that they had a vested interest in making sure that it was so ghastly that it would deter uh, prisoners from, excuse me, colonials from picking up arms. It basically had the opposite effect. When Americans learned, when colonials learned of what the British were doing, it inspired them. I found a handful of letters uh, of, let's say, a shipping captain who would attack a British ship, and the men were yelling, remember the Jersey as they went into battle, sort of like remember the Alamo years mm -hmm. later in American history. Um, but what, th the reason why Americans were so upset by this was because some people escaped. And one of them was a little boy named Christopher Hawkins, and he's always been kind of special to me because his diary was the first one I found. Uh, Christopher Hawkins had the misfortune of being one of the younger children of a, an illiterate poor family, which meant he was apprenticed off, almost like an indentured servant, to work for someone. That person lost their business as most people lost their business during the war. The British blockaded all the ports. Uh, so Christopher Hawkins ended up being sold to a fisherman. And what the fisherman did was he couldn't go out fishing, so he decided to turn his fishing boat into a privateer, that is, a government-sanctioned pirate. Um, so he straps a cannon on board his fishing boat and gets a crew of a handful of illiterate 13-year-old farmers, one of them being little Christopher Hawkins, who would later teach himself to read and write and write his memoir. Um, so they go out to sea, and the purpose is uh, they can't hunt a British warship, of course. You're not going to hunt a frigate or a brig or a man of war, a ship of the line. You know, these things have dozens of cannons and professionally trained crew. What they went after were British supply ships. 
So think of like a bunch of hornets or mosquitoes attacking a big bear. You know, the British could only prosecute this war as long as supply ships were coming across the Atlantic. And the more supply ships that were looted, stolen, or sunk, the more the costs were for the British taxpayer and the crown. So he went out as a hunter, little Christopher Hawkins, and he was excited. Uh, as a little boy who's never been anywhere, would be excited to go to sea. And the promise of treasure, and, you know, think about it. If you sack a supply ship with a few tons of molasses, I mean, you're set financially. Um, but the hunter becomes the hunted. And a British warship called the HMS Sphinx hunts Christopher Hawkins's little fishing boat and blows it out of the water. Christopher Hawkins is captured, uh, put in chains, and uh, taken to the Jersey and thrown below decks in the Jersey. Uh, he's a little kid. Uh, you can imagine him being abused and picked on, beaten. You could imagine him being the last to get food, him having to lie down in the worst part of the ship that is maybe near the portholes because the rain and snow comes in or maybe next to the, the tub with all the urine and feces or whatever. So Christopher Hawkins has a horrible ordeal. He meets another little boy his age named William Waterman and the two plan to escape. What they do is one night when it's storming out, rainy and stormy and so the crew wouldn't hear them and no one would notice. The ship's so rotted that there's a crack in the back of the ship. Uh, they claw at this and tear at it, and they open it up just wide enough to squeeze through. Both boys strip off their clothing, tie them in like a little knot, throw them out the hole, and then Waterman goes first, and then Christopher Hawkins goes second and plops in the water. When Christopher Hawkins plops in the water, he can't find Waterman. He never sees him again. We don't know what happened. Presumably, the boy was weaker than he realized and probably drowned. Christopher Hawkins makes it ashore. Um, he runs by night naked because uh, his clothes sink. Uh, he hides by day in barns. He scavenges for whatever food is being fed the pigs and, and, and chickens. Uh, day after day, he's starving, naked, freezing. He finally can go no farther. And he approaches a farm and he sees a little kid with a basket of produce. So Christopher Hawkins walks up and begs for something. The kid drops the basket and runs in the house screaming. As Hawkins says, I realized I look like a skeleton and a ghost. And the mother comes out and she breaks down crying when she sees Christopher Hawkins, brings him into the house, bathes him, clothes him, feeds him. And what it turns out was that mother, her husband had died on the ghost ship on the Jersey. So she knew all about it. So she helps Christopher Hawkins to escape to find a little uh, canoe. And he finally makes it all the way back home to Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, hadn't seen his family in quite some time, years. Uh, but he's such a hero that this little boy, once he's nursed back to health, he re-enlists in the war and he makes it through the war. It's a remarkable story. Teaches himself to read and write after the war and pens his, uh, writes a, uh, about a 140 word account or diary of his ordeal uh, which I was fortunate to be able to find. And uh, that kind of tipped me off on all this. But the point being, when Christopher Hawkins and others told their stories when they escaped, and Americans heard what the British were doing to their neighbors, it, it didn't, uh, you know, it, it didn't terrorize people to the point where they said, I'm not going to enlist. It did the opposite. 
people enlisted, you know, damn the British, I'm going to fight. Um, so it's, it's a remarkable story. There was also a handful of stories in newspapers, which were just graphic. And it would go something like this. They would say, we all remember little Christopher Hawkins, who went off to see, you know, I don't know, a year ago, whatever. Uh, well, last Tuesday, a naked skeleton stumbled into town. It was young Mr. Hawkins. I mean, you know, so these newspaper descriptions were just spectacular. And, and to make this story all the better, uh, when I was doing a book tour uh, for this book, uh, one of my stops was the Harry Truman Presidential Library in Missouri. Um, and um, I go there and I, I've worked with the Truman Library for years. I served on the foundation board and I'm, Harry Truman's my favorite president. So I know the staff and one of the archivists, they, they threw a Friday history happy hour. Not as cool as a history hack. Obviously, yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. So they tell me, well, for this happy hour, we're going to have you talk and then we're going to have some drinks and invited the public. They said, there's this man that keeps calling us. Uh, is it okay he wants to meet with you? And I said, of course, of course. And they said, you don't understand. He's obsessed. And I go, that's okay. I thought maybe it was someone I knew from high school or college. So I walk in and there's this tall, older gentleman who just breaks down bawling like a baby. And it turns out he was the great, great, great grandson of Christopher Hawkins. And he had all of Christopher Hawkins's private letters he had saved. He read the book. He saw that I talked about Christopher Hawkins throughout the book. He couldn't wait to come and say hello. So we got a picture together and he cried and cried and shook my hand and said, I've been trying to find my, my great, great grandfather's story. So that to me made the entire, you know, <laughs> countless thousands and thousands of hours of research and writing. It made it all worthwhile in that wonderful exchange I had with this uh, fellow. That's amazing. Um, just speaking of writers as well, Walt Whitman, what role does he play in bringing attention to what happened with the jersey? Good, good. So Walt Whitman, uh, the great American uh, poet and literary genius, was uh, a resident of uh, Brooklyn and sometimes penned uh, you know, poems and articles for the local newspaper. Uh, Walt Whitman uh, called it the vast and silent army. That was all the dead, all the bones below that bay. Uh, and what inspired Walt Whitman was, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of men died on this uh, ship. We don't have an accurate number. Uh, I was able to find British war records for one month, but not the next month, for another month, but not the next month. I was able to find diaries of the men, and maybe one diary gave me a six-month period. Then the next year, I had another five months filled in. So I, I had, it's like a puzzle missing a couple pieces. Mm but you can still figure out what the puzzle looks like. And I could extrapolate. So my guess was somewhere around 11,500 men died on this one ship alone. But here's the kicker. Uh, that's twice as many men that died in combat, Americans who died in combat during the entirety of the Revolutionary War. Only about 4,500 to 6,000 Americans died in combat. Now thousands and thousands more died of disease, hunger, uh, mm. That was warfare at the time. More people died of disease than died in combat. So twice as many men died on this one ship. So Walt Whitman saw the, uh, heard the stories of the ship. Um, what he saw was the bones were buried in a crypt uh, off the coast of Brooklyn. But the crypt was neglected, and little young boys would kick the door open and get skulls out and use the skulls to play soccer, football. 
Uh, so they'd be kicking him around. And he thought that was sacrilegious. So Walt Whitman wrote stories to try to raise awareness and raise money to build him a memorial, a monument to these, uh, uh, this vast and silent army, as he called it, all the bones are lying below the streets and uh, the waters of Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Did he do it? Did he get his memorial? He didn't. And if uh. Walt Whitman couldn't get it, no one could get it. Mm. So Walt Whitman started some interest. Uh, there were some members of Congress talked about it. Some local New York politicians talked about it. He got, I think it was two poems about it, published in the newspaper. Uh, but he couldn't raise it, it would it would not be until the early 1900s before finally under president taft uh some local new yorkers the society of old brooklynites they called themselves until they raised enough money to build a an obelisk uh which is still there today it's been there for 100 years uh it's called the the, the prison ship martyrs memorial and there's an obelisk there in brooklyn at Fort Greene Park, which is a popular park for walking your dogs. I've been there a couple of times and I've never been there where there's not dozens and dozens of dogs running around mayhem. <laughs> and what I've done each time I've gone there, and I also went with some politicians in New York when I was trying to build support for doing something. I also went with a few people from the Brooklyn Historical Society. And I also went with a camera crew from the uh, History Channel. Uh, that they do that show, um, uh, Drain the Ocean, I think it's called, mm. uh, where they, if, they, if you drain the ocean, what shipwrecks are there and what does it tell us about history? So they did one episode on, on my book and on the ship. So I went there with all these people. And what I did was I walked around to the 100 people each day jogging or walking their dogs. And I'd say, excuse me, do you see this obelisk? What is that? And they'd all go, oh, I don't know. I, I've never bothered to look. I just see it. And and not a single person knew why it was there or the story of it. And there's this black steel crypt nearby, which has the bones of a few of the men. And I would ask everybody, what's this steel thing sitting there? And everybody goes, oh, I never even noticed it. So basically, dogs just go pee on the memorial. And I didn't find a single person in multiple trips where I just walked around the park stopping everybody saying, excuse me, you know, and nobody knows why it's there. So... Sadly, even locals who were walking their dogs on top of the bones of these prisoners, uh, Walt Whitman's vast and silent army, don't even know the story. That's really sad. So hopefully your book has done something to change that. We're hoping, uh, and the Brooklyn Historical Society had uh, some information on it. I gave a talk there. They put the book in the gift shop. Um, uh, the History Channel did a show, so we're hoping. And uh, I guess the concluding chapter of this was, uh, it, it, Americans called it Evacuation Day in November, what, November 23rd, uh, 1783. This is when the British finally left uh, America. Mm. Uh, now, there were still some, some forts on the Canadian border, but the war ended in September of 1783. That was the peace signing. But... Um, in November, the British finally left, and they gathered. If you go to Wall Street, everybody goes to Wall Street and sees the bull and the statue of the little girl out by Federal yeah. Hall, Wall Street. That little square where that sits, there's a sign above the bull. It says Evacuation Square. 
That's where the British organized in that square long before the bull and all that. Wall Street was still there because there used to be a wall. Um, and that's where the British left. And they, they sold some of their cannons and ships to Americans rather than sail them back. Why would Americans buy them? Because they were so desperate. People needed nails and wood and they needed everything. Uh, then the British loaded up every ship and sailed away uh, fr from there. And as they were sailing away, Americans lined the coast and, sh you know, showed them their butts and, you know, flipped them off and yelled obscenities at them. And the British fired a cannon, but it misfired and the, the ball went right in the water, which just made everybody laugh. So it was, a, it was an, <laughs> in an inglorious departure with their tail between their legs. However, the one piece of real estate in New York, the last city the British held that they left behind was the Jersey. They left the ghost ship in Brooklyn sitting there without the bilge pump being manned around the clock. Over the next couple of weeks, the ship just sunk down into the muck and rotted away. Two of the prisoners uh, came back a few years later and they got on a boat and went out to the spot and they could see part of the hall still below the waves, below the waters uh, rotting there. Um, so uh, unfortunately, um, uh, uh, in the early 1900s, in, in the early 1800s, and then again in the early 1900s, so 100 years apart, uh, we started building the Brooklyn Naval Yard, and they put big, you know, dredging machines in, and they dug everything out, and they built a Navy Yard kind of over top of where the ship was. So most everything was just uh, lost. Fortunately, uh, some bones, uh, a spoon or fork, uh, a handful of relics, a piece of wood. Um, there's, uh, you know, in the New York Museum of History, in the New York Historical Society, in the Brooklyn uh, Museum, there's a handful of pieces of wood, bones, fork, a plate. So there's a handful of artifacts left. I was hoping, you know, that there would have been the wheel, but they had torn the wheel off when they hawked the ship. I was hoping there would be an anchor or a bell, something that we could put in the Smithsonian or, mm. or make, you know, that would generate, because, you know, people want to, they don't want to go and see a nail. Yeah. You know, or, or a toe bone or something, you know. Uh, there's, there's nothing majestic left. Uh, so in a way, the ghost ship got the proper ending. It is a ghost ship. It's, it's if it never existed. Um. Tell people, tell people the name of the book and how they can get hold of it. Because um, I know you've been on, this is twice you've been on now, and we loved having you both times, but you have a habit of making our listeners cry, I think. Um, oh, but tell people, <laughs> no, you're, it's great that you bring attention to these events. Um, they're absolutely harrowing, but fascinating, and things people need to know about. So tell people about the book. So the book's called The Ghost Ship of Brooklyn. It tells the story of the Revolutionary War and the ship and what I just talked about. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. Uh, the publisher is Hachette, the large French company, and uh, DeCapo, D-A-C-A-P-O Press, which is one of their many imprints and publishing houses that they own. Uh, you know, so it's out there. Uh, and, um, you know, it's a rough read in many ways, but I try to then, uh, at the end, focus on some of these stories of escape and I told you about Christopher Hawkins' escape, which is great. But Thomas Strings, you'll have to read, read the book. Yeah. Uh, his, his escape, he meets George Washington. It, it's incredible. Uh, it's almost like a James Bond movie, how some of these people got off the ship. Uh, and man, now many were caught. Many died in this process. But a few escaped. 
Uh, and uh, I try to tell their stories at the end just so that it, you know, it builds to something positive in an otherwise tragic episode of American history. And I'm, I'm a, I love the revolutionary era from the British and the American perspectives. It's one of my favorite eras. I just finished a book on George Washington. I'm doing another book on the era. Uh, and you think you know all there is to know about the revolution. And lo and behold, there are still stories waiting to be told, including whoppers. And I asked lots of historians if they knew about this episode, and I was shocked that most of them had never heard of it. A handful of uh, a Gordon Wood, who is an eminent retired scholar from Brown, who I think is the dean of all revolutionary historians. Basically, your first day in your graduate school, they just say, read Gordon Wood. You know, yeah. he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's the big guy. So I asked Gordon to help and to take a read and look at this. And he was one of the few that knew all about it. But he even suggested that it might not be enough for a book. Uh, but fortunately, we were able to find um, enough diaries and newspaper and British reports and war reports, Washington's letters, Jefferson's letters, Hamilton's letters, Ben Franklin's letters, that, you know, we ended up getting a couple hundred primary sources. So I was, I was, uh, I was uh, worried throughout the process if I'd get enough to write a book, but fortunately we did. And I, I appreciate what you do, and I said that before and I mean it, and I was able to go online and check out some of your stuff, and I really like it. So I'm, I'm delighted and honored to be able to share uh, my passion for these episodes in history with you and your audiences. Keep up the good work. Oh, thank you very much. And make us a promise that you will come back at some point and talk to us about something more happy. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I've got some funner books too. Yes, so I'd be happy to. Yes. Brilliant. You thank you thank so you, much. Alex. Thank you, Alina. Yeah. Join us later when the Rail Splitters podcast dedicated to Abraham Lincoln will be telling us 10 things you should know and love about Abe Lincoln. We will also be hearing from John Jordan, who will be back to talk to us about the Texas Navy. Tomorrow, we will be learning all about the early history of the CIA with Tim Weiner. We will also be hearing from Peter Lyon about one GI and his journey in World War II to Europe. And we will be talking to Lizzie Evans, who researches women's rights and is going to be talking to us about early women serving in the NYPD and how they were employed to crack down on illegal abortions. Until then, don't forget that you can subscribe to History Hack for as little as a dollar a month via our patron system on our website at www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis, which we would dearly love to do, and it is much appreciated. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.